Good morning. We're going to move into our time of scripture reading. Um, today's scripture passage comes from John chapter 11. And this is going to be verses 1 through 44, so stick with me. Um, this is going to be found on page 1634 of the Pew Bible. Um, as you're flipping there, remember that if you need a Bible or if you need a friend who or has a friend who needs a Bible, that this is God's word written and we cherish it very much. Um, so please join me for the reading of God's word written from John chapter 11, starting from verse 1. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one that you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you were going back? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man kept this man from dying? 
Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take the stone away, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he's been there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. So word of the Lord written for his people. Thanks, Femi. Hello, everyone. I want to thank those of you who were at the distribution for Thanksgiving meals yesterday. I was there. It was chilly. Um, but there were a lot of folks. And though there was some standing around, there was a lot of doing, and I just appreciate you being there. Always remember when we go, especially in our multi-ethnic church partnerships, that 40% of why you're there is to talk with the people at the other church and get to know them and learn their names and stuff like that. Just always remember that when we're doing that work. I think that what we did yesterday really did make um, the body of Christ here look good with the body of Christ at um, End Time Ministries and uh, to the people who came and got food. So it was a real success. I appreciate, appreciate everybody who came out for that. All right, I want to dive into this passage. I'm going to preach the first 16 verses of it, but you can't just read the first 16 verses of it because it's a whole thing. Obviously, the central statement in this whole passage is Jesus saying later than verse 16, I am the resurrection and the life. Right? That is the main revelation about the character and person of Jesus. But um, if we did all 44 verses, we probably should be here a couple hours, and you won't do that. So um, I'm Italian. I can keep talking forever. Uh, but listening can get tiring. So I'm going to just start with these first 16 verses so it'll feel like I'm not really resolving it. And that's why. I'm not going to really resolve it. Okay? Um, back when human beings had children, um, the, one of the experiences people usually had by the time they were getting into, like, relatively early adulthood is you got to be there for a birth, right? Um, the, the anti-hero in Anna Karenina, um, Levine and his wife, Kitty, there's this scene where Tolstoy describes the birth of Kitty's first child, and it like, you, you would think she was going to die, right? Like the whole thing, it's like his heart is racing. It feels like the baby's never going to come out. It's not progressing. Like she's screaming. He doesn't know what's going to happen. It just kind of takes you through like the mind of a father the first time his wife has a child. It's like the feeling of helplessness, the feeling like surely she's going to die if she's behaving this way. Like it must be a lot of pain, right? And at, but at, and at the end, the baby comes out and everything's fine. It's just a normal—you find out at the end of the chapter, it's just a normal childbirth. This is just what having a baby is, right? And he's like, oh my gosh, right? One of the things that um, husbands often see with dismay is when their wife has the first child— you see, mercifully in the Bible, men were not included for childbirth. I don't know if you realize this, but if you read through the Bible, there's no men at, at births, right? Men are always waiting somewhere. The women are with the childbearing, and then the, the man gets word after is what happens, Right? Um, now it, we live in an egalitarian culture, and it seems like a fantastic idea to just have husbands there for the birth. And I'm not sure that's a great idea. I'm happy to do it. I'm, I'm being called upon, but it's—I don't know it's a great idea. Anyway, so the husband's there for the whole thing, and then the woman, like, has the child after all the, like, 
show and tell of the pain, right? And then the baby comes out, and then you give the wife the baby, and then sometimes like 40 minutes later, you got in-laws coming on there, people coming in to see the mom and the new baby, right? I know, it's terrible. And so, um, and so, you know, the, your mother-in-law comes in and she coos over the baby. For the, oh, she's a cute baby. She looks just like you. It's such a cute baby, right? Almost no baby is cute when it first comes out. I don't know why we say this, um, but whatever. And then, and then, inevitably, this question is asked, how was the labor? How was the labor, right? And what they always say is, not that bad. Right? 48 hours of labor. But it's not that bad. What's that bad, right? And then the husband is there. And see, the, the man does not have the same experience of amnesia that women have when they're handed a baby. Right? Like, the, I, I was like, listen, I've been awake for 40 hours. I've been doing back rubs for about seven and a half hours of that. She was screaming. Blood vessels in her face clearly have burst. What is wrong with you people? It was horrible. Right? But they're like, God, oh, it's the baby. Look at the baby, right? And there's this sort of fundamental human phenomenon that like, almost no matter how bad the labor is, if you don't die, when you get handed the baby, it's like the pain just kind of, you just kind of start forgetting it. Like really quick, because the baby's there and that's kind of the whole point, right? And Jesus literally says this in chapter 12 of John's gospel, right? He says, you know, I'm going to leave and it's going to be kind of like, it's going to get bad for you. And sometimes it's going to be really bad and it'll be almost like, you're in labor, and then I'm going to return, and the glory will be revealed, and it will be like a woman who's handed her child right at the end of childbirth. It will be labor and labor and labor and labor, and then at one moment it will be over, and it will be like the child is handed to you. Eternity will begin. You will be finally saved, right? But that's, that's not just true. That thing that's true of eternity is also true dynamically in terms of how we believe and trust in God. Let me, let me just try to clarify this for a minute. Um, generally speaking, when people struggle with believing in God, especially when it's relative to pain and suffering, it's that they feel as though the pain that they've experienced is so meaningful and so deep and so powerful that something has to be done about it. Still, even when the pain, the literal pain of the thing has ended, there's a pain that carries forward, right? And it's very easy to mistake the, fun, the, the experience of pain itself with the extended meaning of pain, right? So if somebody dies, there is the pain of that loss that's immediate. But what stays with you is the loss. The grief will end. The loss continues. That person who should have been here, who was there for your whole life and then suddenly wasn't, like when, when I think about my dad's death and my kids' lives now, I don't, I don't feel pain. I feel anger at the reckless driver that hit him. I feel lost that he's not here. I don't actually feel pain, the pain of his death anymore. The thing I'm angry about now is what it means. Same thing with, with an injustice. If somebody, like, somebody hurt you in a very unjust way, the pain of the actual action of the injustice may have been really acute in the moment. It might have literally physically hurt your body. It might have done something to you intensely, emotionally. But it's the, if, that, if that injustice doesn't get dealt with, if, there's, if no justice is meted out, if there's no punishment, if there's no forgiveness, if nothing resolves the dynamic, the thing that carries into the future is not literally the pain itself, but a certain kind of pain attending on the moral meaning of the thing going forward. Does that make sense? Now that may sound like not an important idea. It's extremely important. 
It is the fundamental question of whether or not you can even believe in God. Because what God offers in Christ and in his actions in the world is a resolution to the continuing meaning of the pains that you have suffered, and he offers nothing as a remedy for the pain itself. Nothing. And here's why. Because when you step into glory, none of the pain will be remembered. It will be gone as fast as a woman's labor when the child is handed to her. It will be of no continuing significance whatsoever. It will be shown to have been useful in the hand of God in his providence, but it, he, he, won't, he doesn't compensate you for that other than by giving you what he always meant to give you, which is glory. The reason, though, we hold on to the pain and say, no, no, God is evil. He's unjust. He shouldn't have done this. I shouldn't have experienced this. It's not the actual physical pain or the immediate emotional pain, but it's the significance of it. It's like, this shouldn't have happened to me. This is continuing. I lost that thing. I don't have it now. What about those things, right? And those are all the things God says he actually is going to restore. The lost person can be raised. What opportunities were taken from you if you walked out that loss in faith in the diminished position that you were in, is actually the very ladder of the glory that God will pour out on you in his honoring of the life that you lived in faith. Whether or not you were—you're like, I could have been the president. Well, probably not, but you, maybe you could have been a bigger deal. But you see, that actually does not affect the glory that will be revealed. It doesn't matter. Because of that, you'll find that many of the losses weren't losses then. And so then the question becomes, if that's true, the question is no longer, is God just? The question is, is he really going to do this? Right? Because it's, it's a future promise, right? He's saying, I'm, I am the resurrection. I'm going to raise the dead. Right? Those injustices, I'm either going to, to punish on the cross or in hell. I will mete out justice. That injustice, all the injustice you suffered and the injustices you have perpetrated, will either be paid on the cross or in hell. I'm not forgetting about the injustice of the pains of the world. But my remedy for the pain is that it will be forgotten in the moments of glory. It will just disappear because pain isn't everlasting. It is momentary. And if the injustice and the loss and the grief of it is healed, then it isn't really the pain that's the problem. It's whether or not we actually think there is really a God who is actually going to do it. And you see, that's why salvation has to be by faith. Well, it's one of like 70 reasons, but that's one of them. Because by believing God, you can enter in all that, and you can actually receive it functionally right now. Knowing that you've entrusted to somebody who's trustworthy and who's capable of doing all that to do all of it. He's going to do all that. So now the question is, okay, so what is my next step in the present, given that he's going to do all of that? And I don't, therefore, then have to fixate on pain. Either my anxieties about my existential fears of death, or my fear about doing the right thing in the present, or my fear about doing something daring to find out what could actually happen in the future. That is, anxiety against love, fear against faith, and worry against hope. Does that make sense? And so what, what, in this passage, in a number of passages in John, sorry, this, this thing, I'm just struggling with this. I don't know. It, uh, in John's gospel, 
it's like there is this like very, right? Jesus keeps talking about the water of life and that there's life that he wants to give. It's like there's this clear water running under the ground. And as you walk around, there's these little springs that pop up. And it's like the assumptions that flow underneath everything kind of pop out, and you have to pay attention to them. Because if you get the assumptions right, then you can hear the message when he says it. When Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, he's, he's completing a thought that we can skip over in the first 16 verses if we don't see it. And that is this, that God's assumption is that revealing his glory is more loving than alleviating human suffering. God displaying his glory, that is showing what he's going to do, how he's doing it, and us actually seeing it, savoring it, apprehending it, and acting in accordance with it is much more loving for him to give to human beings than for him to step in and alleviate individual sufferings. Now that, I, I recognize, some of you are hearing that and you're like, that is such a religious, stupid cop-out. It could be that, or it could be a much deeper thing than you think it is that is actually the fabric of reality until the glorification of Jesus the Christ. So hang with me for a few minutes here, okay? Another way to say this would be something like this. God's main gift to suffering humanity is glory, not relief. God's main gift to suffering humanity, which is all of us, is glory, not relief. Now that does not mean that God doesn't ever give relief or that God doesn't actively work in situations to give relief to pain. He often does, but that is not his main priority. And when you wonder, well, why doesn't he do it more— one of the examples as given in this particular passage is he has bigger priorities and greater purposes for human beings than alleviating suffering until he will alleviate all suffering. Okay, so just to clarify definition-wise, what this—as we move into the latter chapters of John, Jesus is more and more saying the purpose of the, what the Father is doing in the coming of the Son is to glorify himself by glorifying the Son. That is— and then you might be like, well, then what the heck is glory? Or if that word doesn't mean anything to you, you can't put a stake in it and understand what's happening. And what glory is, is something like this. Glory is the full greatness of a particular subject shown for what it is, right? So if I, if I achieve glory in pickup basketball, right, I'm actually good at basketball. I score a lot of points, and then everybody sees that I'm good at basketball. Does that make sense? So I'm glorified in the sense that I am something— and I'm known by the possible knowing subjects that I am great, right? So it's glory revealed. Does that make sense? The revelation is important because as you read through John's gospel, the point here is not that God becomes more glorious. God doesn't become more glorious, and the Son doesn't become more glorious. The whole series of actions here is the display of the glory. That is, the human beings, the most necessary thing for us is not relief from our suffering. The most important thing for us is we are in darkness. That is, we don't see, savor, and apprehend what God is actually like. Because of that, we don't trust him. Because of that, we live more in darkness, create more darkness, and create more harm. And then we're so much more invested in that darkness, we don't want to see the light. And we move deeper and deeper in that direction and further and further away from God's will for us and what we're meant to be in the lives of each other. Right? So when you think of God's glory, it would be something like this. His manifold or many interconnected perfections displayed as worthiness so that it rightly evokes faith in us. Does that make sense? And one of the problems with this, talking about God's glory is because God's glory is all of his beauties and perfections in their perfect interrelationship understood in their proper proportions, 
describing that is more like describing beauty than describing a basketball. Which is hard, right? You can describe a basketball so that somebody can walk away with a general sense of what the, what the heck that is. It's very difficult to just describe beauty. And so a complete and perfect description of the glory of God is a little bit difficult. It's one of the reasons why God sent his son as the Christ to show as well as tell us. In every situation where Jesus is telling us about his glory, he's showing us. Because some things you have to show, you can't just tell. Love tends to be one of them. And glory is one of them. Now, if you pay attention in this passage, a number of these glories or great things about God and his character and his will are displayed, right? Like, for example, that he's the resurrection of the life, that he really can overpower and reverse death. You also see a Jesus that is filled with compassion towards people who are suffering and who comforts those who are suffering, even when he doesn't alleviate it. You see somebody who's willing to face danger for the good. And has, and has unspeakable courage. You see somebody who suffers with, for, and the most. So as you walk through this, right, who suffers? He, he suffers with people in their sufferings. He's going to die for them. And he suffers more than anybody. You get to the end of this passage, who suffers the most? Lazarus is alive. Mary and Martha are comforted. The disciples have seen glory and believe. Everybody's happy, except the fact that the Jewish leaders decide on the basis of this, we are going to kill Jesus, and they do. Who suffers the most from John 11? It's always God that suffers the most. We think because of our bias about privilege that God doesn't suffer, right? Well, God's the most powerful being in the world or in the universe. Like, he doesn't suffer. That's false. If God is inhibited in destroying you and I because of his care and his long-suffering mercy, but we still do whatever we want to do, and he still is morally perfect. That creates a breach morally. In Ezekiel, I mean, we, this, we talked about empathy towards God. Like, we have, we have, oh, have empathy towards me. I just, I'm hurting. I want to do what I want. I should be able to do whatever I want. No. Have some empathy for God. You create a creature who sticks, who shows you one of their fingers in the center of their hand, does whatever they want in and with your creation, destroys and harms all of your other image bearers, and then you just, you just try to find a way to turn them around over and over and over again. And they use that, they see that as weakness in you rather than mercy, and they take another mile for the inch that you offered to give them grace so that they would turn. How would you emotionally respond to that? You'd break their bloody legs, is what you do. It, so God is capable of metabolizing suffering in his own person, right? His wrath is a form of divine suffering. If he's holding wrath for a humanity that deserves it, and he isn't giving it yet, it's burning in him. Do you like being mad? Now, God is impassable in the sense that, like, his anger doesn't do the same kinds of emotional things inside of him as us. And I don't know what God's psychology is completely like. And I don't want to get into how many angels are on the head of which pin. But the, the point here is this idea that, like, God doesn't feel anything. Like, he reveals himself in Scripture as having incredibly intense feelings. Many of those are negative feelings that imply suffering. Now, I don't know exactly how that is in the divine person, but it's something that he wants to tell and show us so that we would understand something about it. We are infuriating to him, and he divinely suffers over us so that when Jesus the Son suffers with us, he is not just glorifying the Father in that he is suffering 
so that the Father doesn't have to destroy us. He is demonstrating the willingness of the Father to suffer immeasurably in his withholding of wrath at every moment. In his kindness. To be repaid evil for another hour of mercy. Like, you've all felt indignant. You probably got cut off this week, and you're like, that son of a— like, you're like, you just— that indignation, you just feel so— right? It's like nobody has ever had more just indignation than the creator of this universe. And he bears it. To give you and I one more hour to come to our senses, to see who he is, to see what he's done, to recognize his glories revealed, to give up our grievances over our sufferings and to turn to him in real faith so that we could be healed. And we could go on. Okay, I'll say more about that next week. You can see this in um, the first verses, right? He says this. So the sisters went, sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. And when he heard this, Jesus said, the sickness will not end in death. No, it is for the God's glory that the Son, the God's Son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. Okay, I do want to say this for those of you who are like Bible reading Christians. Don't read the passage about Mary and Martha in the other Gospels, where Martha's like the busybody and Mary's the one like the one sitting at Jesus' feet is so spiritual into this passage. The, the fun thing God did for Mary and Martha is he created one passage in which Mary, Mary spiritually won, and he created another passage in which Martha spiritually won. Okay, Martha, if you read it without reading the other one into this, Martha is by far the more spiritual person in this passage than Mary is. Okay? And so just— that's just a side note. So don't read the Bible wrong in that way. Poor Martha, like all the, all the type A personality people who are like, I'm going to get stuff done, or like, yeah, Jesus loves Mary more than me. He doesn't love Mary more than you. Mary completely blows it with her emotionality in this one and dishonors the teacher. And she, he loves him and he cares for her, but she's wrong. And Martha is the only one that when she says, if you were here, my brother wouldn't have died, she adds a statement of faith and reconciliation to it and says, but even now, I know God will give you everyone. She's still in a state of faith because she has some emotional discipline. And Mary doesn't. She's just like, if, my, if you were here, my brother wouldn't have died. And that's, that's the last thing Jesus says, or Mary says. And then Jesus offers her compassion because he often does that to people who are not behaving well. But it's not because Mary, he loves Mary more. Right, okay, now let's move on. Do you see the point here? It says, Jesus gets this message. And in the message, Martha or Mary, whoever puts it together, says, the one you love is sick. Right? So they are, they are appealing to Jesus on the basis of the idea that they believe that Jesus loves them. And then John tells us that Jesus does love them. And so— he doesn't go there for two more days. Now, in the original NIV, they put in the word yet. There's some translations that like be like, but, but here's the thing. John knew the Greek word for on the other hand, but he doesn't use it here. He just uses so, basically. Jesus loved Mary and Martha, so he stayed where he was two more days. Like staying away was his way of loving them. Jesus, the one you love is sick, right? Have you ever prayed that? Jesus, I, I, you say that you love me, X is happening, right? And then John says, Jesus does love you, so he does the opposite of what you asked for. Do you see what that's saying? Jesus, what Jesus says, and what he says later to his disciples, you know, he says to Thomas, he says, listen, Lazarus is dead, 
And for your sake, I'm glad that I wasn't there. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying Mary and Martha and Lazarus are bearing the pain of your faith. Because for you to see somebody raised from the dead, they had to walk with Lazarus through death. Lazarus had to actually experience dying, the helplessness of knowing word had gone out to somebody who could save him, who didn't get there in time. Mary and Martha had to pray and watch and pray and watch and hope in complete futility and watch their brothers succumb to death and die and start to rot and have to bury him without Jesus ever showing up. That was the price personally for these believers so that the disciples could see something great, actually see the glory of God, Lazarus being raised from the dead. And so he does not say, for Lazarus, Mary and Martha's sake, I'm glad. Right? He says, for your sakes, I'm glad. And you see, almost every way in which God displays his glory in our lives, someone's paying the cost. Somebody is the setup. Right? Jesus says, this sickness won't end in death, but it's for the glory of God. Now, Jesus does not say that God actually created the sickness and like put it in Lazarus. But he's saying providentially what's going to happen is, what the Father is doing is he's going to use this for his own glory— and to glorify his son. Does that make sense? And so in this, in this little verse, which you can just read over, Jesus is explicitly showing and saying that the most loving thing that God can do for a suffering world is to display his glory, not relieve the suffering. Do you believe this? Are you capable? You are capable. The question is, are you willing to believe what Jesus says about himself. Are you willing to, even if, you're, even if you don't believe in Jesus yet, and you're scrutinizing Jesus, are you willing to scrutinize Jesus on his own terms? Or in arrogance, will you only scrutinize him on your own terms? Right? Okay, let's keep moving. I'm running out of time, so we're going to keep going. Okay, the second thing is, is that faith chooses pursuing glory over paralyzing uncertainty. So the first thing, love— chooses to show glory not to alleviate suffering. And that is more loving. Here, there's a question of faith. What are you going to do? This is the situation you're in. What are you going to do? So after two days, Jesus says, okay, let's go to Judea. And his disciples are like, are you kidding me? Because like they thought they understood why they'd waited two more days. It was that they weren't going. Right? The glory of God, they thought was— Lazarus is going to recover. <laughs> We're not going to go to Judea and get ourselves killed. And that's going to be for the glory of God because Jesus is going to do more ministry. Things are going to go better. He's going to become the Messiah and King of Israel. Everything's going to be fantastic rather than stupidly getting killed over this guy Lazarus because he's got pneumonia or something. And then Jesus says, let's go to Judea. And it tells us right in the passage that Bethany is less than two miles from Jerusalem. Jerusalem is where they've almost stoned Jesus three times. Twice in the last chapter before he left right? It's a death wish, right? He says, let's go back. And so the thing is, is that— Okay, so here's what they say. Then the disciples said—he says to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews tried to stone you, yet you're going back there, right? They, they're not even saying that they're going back there. They're like, so you're going to go back. That's interesting. Okay, right? And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by this world's light, meaning the sun, right? It's when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. Now, when he says this world in that context, he does not mean the world. That is, you should see by the world's light. That is, be super sly and tricky, right? What he means is that there's a light in this world, which is the sun. And when the sun is out, it doesn't really matter that much what, you're, what path you're walking on. 
if you're walking on a nice Roman road, or you're walking like a little path here, or if you're, if you're walking through something that's kind of rocky, as long as there's light and you know how to walk, you can navigate it without stumbling. Stumbling in this context does not mean stub your toe or trip a little bit. Stumbling in the, the, the context of the Bible means to like fall and hurt yourself, okay? And so if there's light, the road doesn't really matter. What matters is that you can see. And if you can see, you can navigate it. He's like, but if it's dark out, it really doesn't matter what road you're on. You're likely to fall, right? Especially in the ancient world where there weren't street lights or anything like that. You literally had no light, right? And those of you who are under 40, who can basically see in the darkness, you're like, I can almost see in the darkness. Okay, in other passages, Jesus says the light that is within you, meaning the capacity of your eyes to actually see. So the extent to which you can see in the dark is the light that is within you in this metaphor with Jesus, right? That there's some light enough to see by, and that's what allows you to do it. If you completely close your eyes, you can run into a wall right in front of your face, right? So what Jesus is saying is this. He's saying, listen, what we do, if you belong to God, if you are a son or daughter of God, what we do is not dictated by what's in front of us, but our ability to navigate it based on what we can see. That's what matters, right? There's 12 hours where there's light, and you can do stuff and not hurt yourself. And there's 12 hours, there's dark, and all the same stuff is all there. All that stuff is there. You can work all night, but you can't see, so you can't do anything productive. You see what he's saying? He's saying, that's what matters. Now, if you listen to Jesus through the Gospel of John, he's very clear that he is that light, right? In chapter 8, he's already said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me won't walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Then by cha verse, chapter 9, he says this, it was not that this man sinned, this is the man born blind, right? Nor his parents, but the work of God might be displayed in him. We must do the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. And as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. You see what he's saying? He's saying, as long as I know what to do and I have something to do, and God has given me a functional opportunity to do it, I need to act then. Not later. And he says, now while, I, while I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. Right? And then you get to this passage. And then two chapters later, in chapter 12, he says it this way. Jesus said to them, the light is among you for only a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. And while you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. Okay, you see what he's saying there? He's saying, he's like, I'm going to die, and I'm going to leave. And you have an opportunity right now to actually believe in me. He's saying, so that the light, or, the, or, or what, how I see the world, and know what to do in it, can pass from me into you. And you can become a child of the light. And when that happens, even when I'm gone, and even in periods of other, otherwise darkness, you will be a, yourself a child of the light. You will shine the light, and you'll be capable to walk in the light, even with me not being here. What Jesus is saying is he's saying, look, what this ultimately comes down to is, he, he says, I know the next thing I'm supposed to do, that God wants me to do. That's really all that matters. I'm just going to go do it. I'm not going to try to figure out all the outcomes or control everything that happens. I'm not going to be overly controlling or shrewd. I'm going to be smart. I'm going to use wisdom, but I'm not going to step back and not do what should be done. I'm going to do what should be done, and I'm not going to pretend that I don't know what should be done. And so he's like, I'm going to go back to Lazarus, and I'm going to do something. And they're like, they're going to kill us. He's like, that's really not the important thing. The important thing is I know what I'm supposed to do. You see, friends, that is not the way people live in our culture. That's not the way human beings normally live anywhere. 
Human beings first ask the question, what will happen to me? And then they decide what they're going to do. The devil said it the best in the book of Job. Skin for skin, a man will do anything to protect his own life. The question of the book of Job was, is was there one human being on the entire planet that didn't operate that way? Even one. And God was like, well, maybe Job. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe there's one. You see, the fundamental nature of human beings, even the ones who claim to believe in God, claim to trust God, claim to follow God, claim to pursue righteousness, what they do is they look at what they think might be good, and then they think, what will happen to me if I do that? And if it's bad, they don't do it. And what Jesus is saying is, that's not how it works. If you live in glory, and if you live in the light, if you're a son or daughter of the light, or if you care about the glory, if you realize that God giving and showing and displaying his glory is more important even than alleviating suffering, even your own suffering, you will recognize that when you know what is right in front of you, faith is choosing that rather than saying, what will happen to me? And listen, I I hear all kinds of Christians and all kinds of people saying all the time, I don't like what's happening in context X. I realize it's bad. I realize it's wrong. I realize it's going to hurt people. I realize it is hurting people. But if I do Y, A will happen to me. I don't like X, but if I do Y, A will happen to me. And therefore, I don't do Y. You know what the corollary of that is? You are letting X happen. That's what the corollary is. All over the world right now. All over the world. Where are the people with character who don't swing to one extreme or the other, who recognize that something is wrong, and in a disciplined and principled way say, this is what's right. This is what's true. This is what matters. Stop doing that, or I won't be party to this, or you are doing this and you're trying to pretend you're not, or you're holding this in secret and I'm going to bring it into the light. I am not going to do what you tell me to. In Solzhenitsyn's book, The Gulag Archipelago, he talks about how Russia was completely overwhelmed. And he said it wasn't because there were so many communists. He said it was because there were so many cowards. It was because there were so many people willing to live by lies that the liars were able to control everybody else. Because the people who live by lives were afraid of what was going to happen to them. And so Jesus just, he wouldn't live by that. He knew what he was supposed to do, and he walked right into the jaws, knowing that it would set in motion the actions of his own death, knowing that he was just going to save one man from death, a man who was going to die again, probably worse. Church history says that, um, that Lazarus was murdered under the reign of Caligula in one of the great persecutions. So Lazarus got to come back to life from a sickness so that he could die a violent murder. Doesn't that sound great? God's purpose is to display his glory, not alleviate human suffering. When God finally alleviates human suffering, in the moment of glory, all of the pain will be forgotten immediately and forever like a woman who receives her child. That is not what he's doing. He's showing his glory so that we would love— so that we would believe in these last couple of verses, so that we would hope. Right? Hope chooses to discover glory rather than avoid death. You see, when God is going to do something, here's what you need to understand, and this is why some of you are very unhappy with your faith. 
especially some of you young people, but everybody this is true of. In order for you to experience the glorious thing that God does, you have to actually be there when he does it. You have to be there. If you're not there, you don't get to experience it. You understand? Who experienced the raising of Lazarus? Some people who were there. There were some people who were Jewish friends of the family, and they went to stay for a week of mourning as these Jewish people sat in mourning for their lost brother. They loved the family enough to be with the family. They were doing what they thought was right, what they thought was good, and they were there, right? And they cared about Mary and Martha. And Jesus went, and the disciples went with Jesus. People ended up in that spot for slightly different reasons. The way they expressed faith was slightly different. But they were at the tomb when Jesus said, Lazarus, come out. You have to be there, right? And so you get to this place where Jesus says, look, we're going to go back to Judea. And his disciples are like, this is crazy, right? And so he's like, no, this is what I'm doing by faith. And so the question is, are the disciples going to go? Because they say, they say, Jesus, you're going to go back? That's interesting, right? And so Jesus says, look, here's what you need to understand. And Jesus doesn't explicitly say exactly what he's going to do. Do you realize this? He doesn't say, look, I'm going to raise Lazarus from the dead. That's what's going to happen. He's cryptic about the good. And God is always like that. He does not tell you his plan. He never will. He may give you some revelation about the next thing that you're going to do, but in most cases, you know the next good thing that you should do. You're just afraid to do it. Right? And that's the step. And, he, and so the question is, are you going to go? And so you see, the, the question for the disciples is, you can stay in Judea or in, in Galilee, or, or I'm sorry, they're, they're like, on, they're like on the, in the Transjordan, okay? So you can stay in the Transjordan desert, and you can stay where John the Baptist was baptizing people, and you can stay where people have come out to believe in Jesus, and you can stay in that nice, safe place. You can almost call that a church. You can stay right in that nice little church, and you can be a church just unto yourself. Or you can follow Jesus out to where he's going as the people of God, and you can find out what's going to happen. And it, when you do that, it's going to be dangerous. It's and there's a very, it's a very important question, okay? Are you willing to risk everything you stand to lose to be there when the glory happens? That's the question. Are you willing to risk everything you stand to lose for you to be there when the glory happens? See, that's what hope means. And it turns out, sadly, that that's binary. It's a yes or no <laughs> reality. All right, sorry. I don't have time for that right now. So, so quickly, just let me, let me wrap it up for you so you can think about what we should take away. First is, the permanence of your pain is not the pain itself. If God resolves in redemption the moral characters of pain, your pain as a claim against God is not valid. The question is, is he there and is he going to do it? Therefore, the question is not one of justice. Is God unjust? It's a question of faith. Do you believe he is going to resolve the things that should be held against the nature of a fallen creation? The second is, is God is offering you glory, not relief. The way you believe in God, if you believe in God the way Mary and Martha believed in God in this passage, that he, he was going to come and save them from their grief, that he was going to be there in time, and that when he was there, their brother wasn't going to die. If that's the way you believe in God, what John is telling you is, please do not believe in God like that. Stop Stop believing in God like that. The promise of him coming in and ending suffering is an eschatological promise. It is an end-of-the-play promise. It is a future promise. He is the resurrection and the life. 
It is not a right now promise. Right now we are receiving and displaying and calling people to that glory through love, by demonstrating faith, and by risking and hope. That is what we are doing. We are risking with and like Jesus and facing death if necessary to display the glory of God so that God will be made known in the midst of human suffering for the salvation of all who will believe. And then, after the travail of the labor of all of it, God will put a baby of glory in our hands. And we'll forget the pain. Just like that. Right? Therefore, right love chooses glory, not relief. That's not just what God is doing with you. That's what we need to do with others. Does your parenting method take that into account? Does the way you love your roommate or your spouse take that into account? Does the way you relate to coworkers, does the way you vote, does it take that into account that glory being revealed is more important in the immediate than relief? Because, it, because if I take away an immediate pain of yours, it's, it's a short-term fix. You're going to suffer a lot more times. But if I give you a vision of God that is a salve in every suffering you'll ever suffer, that takes away its sting even though it doesn't remove all of the pain, you have a companion in every suffering all the way through death and the means by which to achieve and experience eternal life. It's not even trade. For then, faith acts by its light, not out of fear. We don't have to know what's going to happen to us. We have to know what we believe is right and to do it as shrewdly as we can. There's not just the reality of light that causes us to do something, but it's the urgency. You've only got 12 hours of light. It's a limited time. Tomorrow is not a good time to believe in God. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the moment of action. Right now, right? If you haven't, like, if you, if you have some kind of personal conflict that you, you should deal with, now is the time. Not later. Whenever God gives you the capacity to have the courage to deal with something, do it then. The way your mind makes sure you don't do things that bring you into danger, the way anxiety and fear and worry win, is to tell you to put off the thing you intend to do. The minute your main center of your conscious mind says, I'm going to do X, the part of your heart and mind that's afraid says, well, let's just do it a little later. Because arguing is no, of no use at the moment. And it usually wins that way. Hope is willing to risk to see glory. You have to be there. And Jesus is the embodiment of all these glories. Believe in him. Not because you think he's going to take away all of your suffering and pain, but because he's going to deal with the eternal realities of our pain in the end, so much so that we will forget the pain of our labor in this life when the joy of glory is handed to us forever. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, um, we pray that you'd help us to embrace the truths that you teach. We pray that the fact that you participated in them and lived in them yourself, that you faced, lived in, accepted these sufferings, such that the God that we're trusting in actually walked, participated, and felt them far worse than us, far more than us, and engaged in them more redemptively than us, and even took many of our sufferings. We pray that you'd help us to see the credibility you bought for yourself, and for that to be something that shows and displays your glory for us. We pray that you'd help us to see the Son of God glorified, so that we could see your glory, so that we could face pain, so that we could really love that we could really act in faith and we could really hope 
no matter what the risk, so that we would be there when you act. We pray that through that, we would get to see your activity in the world. We would get to see your glory in strange things that happen among us that are working towards redemption. We pray that you'd help us to believe these 16 verses and their eternal significance in Jesus' name.